What was uh, Portugal's perception of President Trump? 56% of the people in Portugal had a high approval rating of the United States. Portugal likes the United States more than the United States likes the United States. You have a special attachment to Portugal, specifically Fatima. I talked with my wife about it at length, and she's like, you know what? You should tell this story. We, we got to witness a miracle in Fatima. <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I am joined by George Glass. He is a former ambassador to Portugal under the Trump administration from 2017 to 2021. Uh, George, I can't say I've ever talked to an ambassador before. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm hoping to learn a little bit more about you in your life. No problem. Great to be here and everything. I'm a big fan of Catholic Vote and uh, have gotten to know Brian o Birch over the time, and he is the great Catholic activist. Uh, in the country and admire everything he's doing. And uh, I want to tell you, I, I read the loop every day and I'm dependent on, upon my saint of the day, thanks to you guys. <laughs> That's awesome. Were you uh, were you reading the loop while you were the ambassador to Portugal as well? No, actually that came uh, uh, when we got back. Okay. I was hoping that we had some uh, international influence, but maybe we need to work up towards that. Uh, but but tell me, I mean, how does how does one you know, getting the ambassador game. How did that come about, this opportunity for you to be a diplomat to uh, Portugal? Yeah, that's a great question. And it happens in so many different ways. I mean, uh, some people are uh, friends of the president, others are business associates, others work their way through government and so forth. Uh, in my case, uh, I've always been involved in uh, uh, presidential politics. I worked on W's campaign and, and McCain's campaign and so forth. And so uh, when working on the uh, 2016 election, I uh, got to know Donald Trump, went down, visited him, thought that this is the only person that could beat Hillary, uh, found out he is, he really, uh, even though he's not Catholic, he has all of our morals and, uh, uh, and attributes and beliefs in the Catholic Church. And so uh, it was very easy to get behind and support him. So I worked on the campaign through the year. And uh, when we got that through, kind of every time, uh, uh, especially when it's a new candidate, and they come into the uh, in the election itself. They look at everybody who's been working and say something like, you know, if if when I win, you know, do you want a job? And uh, my response was, yes, we'd sold our company in 2014. I was effectively unemployed and retired. And uh, I said, absolutely, I'd love to go to work with the administration. So uh, off we went. And uh, I'm one of the lucky people I got to um, you, you, you put in for what you think you'd be good at. And, uh, I was blessed by, uh, getting my first and really only choice is we were dead set to go to Portugal and represent the United States and represent the Trump administration in Portugal. That's awesome. And, and I have to ask first, I don't know if you saw, but Catholic vote just recently endorsed president Trump or former president yeah. Trump for this upcoming election. And we, of course, it's anything involving president, former president Trump is very much a powder keg. Uh, and to hear you say that you felt that he really embodied your values as a Catholic, and I understand you're, you're a Catholic, you like the loop, everything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think that uh, in your your experience with him was so different than maybe how he gets portrayed in the media, or even to some Catholics maybe concerned with past comments or how he's been portrayed? Like, wh where's the disconnect, you think? 
Well, and it, it, it really revolves around the media and how they portray him. Uh, if you followed President Trump on Twitter in 2016, 17, 18, as we got into the administration, he probably tweeted 20 times a day. And so you've got 120, 150 uh, tweets a week. And one of those would be something that would be a little bit could be construed or taken out of context to be something that would you know, be bombastic or, or people would, would focus on. And sure enough, CNN, MSNBC, that's the only tweet they put up. And so I can't tell you how many times I have people say, well, I can't stand his tweets. Well, you know, as of right now, he hasn't been on Twitter for two and a half years. Uh, and so if you've got a problem with his tweets, you're, you're certainly going back in your history quite a ways on yeah. the telephone. Um, and he's, he's, you know, he is not anything like he's portrayed on, on, uh, on the media. He is a thoughtful listener. He is very pro-life. He is spiritual. He is, he is, uh, has a profound wisdom. Um, he is a tremendous, and what I appreciated from the business standpoint of working for the government and how decisions were made, he is a tremendous decision maker. If you're in a meeting with him, he'll sit down and he will go to every single person. I want to know what you think. I want to know what you think. I want to know what you think. And they'll turn around and go, okay, this is the decision. This is what we're going to do. And at that point in time, it's like, no, I, I, we're not here for to discuss it further, put it out for polls, see what other people think. The decision's made and off you go. And uh, that, from a business standpoint, is just tremendous. And so having him as your boss, when you are, so when you're a political ambassador like I was, uh, which is most of Western Europe, there's about 30 countries in the world that are represented by picks of the president. The rest are career ambassadors who work their way through uh, the State Department. And so you have direct con. You work for the president of the United States and states and countries want that because it gives them a direct contact straight to the White House. So it's a it's a very good thing in both countries. And we've we've been working under that uh, premise for you know for as long as our country's been uh, been in existence. And we're one of the only countries who do that. And so other countries run everybody through their foreign ministry or their State Department, like in their career ambassadors. In our case, you know, the president picks you, you go to your country, you represent the nation. That's really interesting. And, and I guess you can only really speak for Portugal and personal experience, but in other countries, what was uh, Portugal's perception of President Trump? I know a lot of countries were kind of, ner- at least the media portrayed it to be, oh, they're super nervous about how he's going to be taken internationally. Like, what was their perception of him? You know, that's uh, uh, when we got there, I took a uh, big poll across the country in Portugal. And there were a couple of very interesting things we found out. Uh, Portugal loves the United States. I mean, they're, they're our second oldest ally in, in our history. And uh, they love being part of that. They're part of their one of the founding members of NATO. Uh, you know, they're part of the EU and they, and they have a very close relationship with the United States. So as we took this survey, we came back and we found 56 percent of the people in Portugal had a high approval rating of the United States, which meant that Portugal likes the United States more than the United States likes the United States. <laughs> so, and, good so reminder for that, us. Yeah. yeah, these are these are very good friends of ours. And and so as we went out, and we discussed uh, President Trump. They were nervous. They were very nervous because they weren't sure. You know, I mean, he's portrayed when you watch the news in Europe and you're watching English speaking news, it tends to be CNN. And so there weren't a lot of outlets being uh, that were representing really what we planned on doing. But what they what they figured out pretty quick is we were there to get things done. 
We were there to grow their economies. I mean, that's part of the make America great is we can't be great if we don't have partners working with us. And so what, what Portugal immediately found out is we bumped up the, our trade numbers with them, went through the roof almost immediately. And so, so they all looked at it and said, well, if this is how it works. We're all in. So he became very wealthy. I mean, it, it always t teetered around approval ratings in the 40s, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but when COVID came around and we were there to help and the Chinese were there to make money off it, you know, his approval rating went shot way up and went through, you know, uh, we watched Chairman Xi go down, we've watched Putin go down, and we watched Trump slowly climb up. So uh, as, they got, as they figured out what we were doing, they liked it a lot. That's very interesting. And I, I mean, he, he ran a campaign on being a businessman and getting things done. So yeah. uh, very interesting to see that trickle down internationally. But uh, a few things really stuck out when I was uh, doing a little research on you. One, you were the first Catholic ambassador to Portugal, which is a majority Catholic country. I've seen figures around 80%. First, first Catholic in a while, I should say. In a while. In a while. Uh, and you have a special attachment to Portugal, specifically Fatima. So I guess maybe we can go through both those threads. But first, what was that special connection through Fatima that you had to Portugal? Yeah, that's a very personal story. And I know that Brian knew that. So it's interesting that you asked that question. And uh, I talked with my wife about it at length. And she's like, you know what, you should tell this story because it's a, it's a wonderful, we, we got to witness a miracle in Fatima ourselves with our own eyes. And, and uh, it was 2014, we'd sold the company, our uh, Pacific Crest Securities to KeyBank. Uh, we were on a trip to go visit friends uh, up the Duro and go to Portugal. And my wife, Mary, is, I mean, she's a wonderful, wonderful Catholic woman. And she said, well, then we're going to go on a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Fatima. And so off we went and we took another couple with us. And, and the woman who was with us was not Catholic. Her husband was a, a fallen away Catholic. And uh, as we we went to Fatima, we got a tour guide, and the tour guide looked at my wife and said, "Well, we have an excellent opportunity today. We can meet uh, Lucia, who is one of the shepherd children. Uh, we can meet her niece, and she's the oldest living relative directly that knew Lucia and lived with her as a young girl." And uh, of course, being being the uh, I don't know how to describe myself, but on the business sense, I was looking at this is totally a money making venture. We are not going to see, you know, some relative of Lucia's. Yeah. And of course, my wife turned around, Mary turned around, and said, "Oh, absolutely, we're going to go see her." So we went and saw, and in this room was a very small. Uh, she's about in her high eighties. Uh, she was dressed in black. She was bent over. She had her rosary and she was praying there with her eyes closed. And so we knocked on the door and, uh, of course we pushed Mary in first and off she went and she went and kneeled down in front of her and, and said, you know, I mean, we're very blessed to be here. And, and, uh, and we had an interpreter and the interpreter was saying that, you know, she's going to pray for you and thank you for coming. I go in, I do the same thing. I get down on a knee and she would grab me in our little hands and she puts them up and says a little prayer. And then our, our uh, girlfriend, uh, Whitney, went in and uh, she, this, this elderly woman just jumped up, opened her eyes, grabbed her, pulled her to her. And uh, it was a moment that the air got thick. Her husband, Jim, looked and said, what's going on? There's something going on here. This isn't right. And this, uh, this elderly, wonderful saint of a woman just started rattling off in Whitney's ear in Portuguese. Well, none of us spoke Portuguese at that point in time. 
And uh, we got done. She or she then slumped down, and Whitney looked, and we were like, "Oh my God, what happened?" And she said, "All I know is she told me that my faith will heal me, and that's all we knew." And she and didn't. We were like, this she said this all in Portuguese, and she didn't know Portuguese. all in Portuguese, and she didn't know any Portuguese. Huh. And so this was, and none of us could understand anything. And she just turned around. And she goes, "No," she told me multiple times, "My faith is going to heal me." So she went home at the end of this trip, and there's another piece of it that I'll go back to. But at the end of the trip, she went back to L.A. Uh, she was so taken aback by Fatima and Our Lady of Fatima and this experience uh, that she began RCA classes and she's joined the Catholic Church. She's one of the most wonderful Catholics. And shortly into that, she got very sick. They took her to the hospital and uh, uh, they gave her an uh, appendectomy. They took her appendix out and they looked at it and the entire, when they did the biopsy, the entire appendix was filled with cancer cells. Wow. The entire thing. And... Uh, and so they began immediately chemo and other things, and they soon discovered there wasn't a single other cell of cancer in her body, not one. And she still is cancer-free to this day. And they're like, this is just an absolute miracle that your appendix somehow just picked all this up, cleaned it out. And she is, and this is a woman who, you know, says her rosary every day to Our Lady of Fatima. And so this is, and then we went on to a church and Mary had a similar experience. You know how every church in, in Europe and especially in Portugal has the little old lady begging in front. Yep. And this, uh, you know, she all rattled her, her basket at us as we went by and we put in a little bit of change. But Mary goes, you know what, I'm going to give you something when I come back out, but I need to go inside. In English, women just looked at her. We came back out, the women grabbed her just like the lady in Fatima did and started and talking to her and said in Portuguese, because Mary turned around and goes, she just told me we need to go to this chapel over here. And it was a shrine to St. Joseph. And St. Joseph is who we'd been praying to, you know, all along this. And so we've now come to the conclusion that, you know, yes, you need to, you know, silence your heart and silence your life to listen to God. But in this case, you know, we we weren't, our hearts weren't silent. We were part of a trip. We were, uh, we had the campaign going on. You know, there were just a lot of things going on in our lives and the company, we just sold the company. And uh, long story short, uh, this was our impression of uh, God wasn't speaking to us. He was yelling at us. <laughs> and so, so. All of this, fast forward to the campaign and when asked, you know, what if, if I win and you want a job, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be the ambassador to Portugal. And all the way through, Our Lady of Fatima kept showing up. And all, you know, literally in a Senate confirmation, if you read the transcripts on that, I'm asked, why do I want to go to Portugal? And I start talking about Our Lady of Fatima, and immediately the questions go on to, you know, someone else. They, they don't want anything to do with me. And they're like, yeah, that guy's fine. Let him go. And so I ended up being the first ambassador to Europe and one of the first ambassadors out. But I got over there and I went in. I'm sorry, this is a lengthy story. Oh, but go for it. it. The moral to this story is, as they sit down, they take you in and you have a big meeting with the president of your country. You hand over your documents that say you're plenty potentiary and you are the voice of America in that country. And uh, in my case with uh, 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 the president of Portugal, he said, well, let's take a minute and sit down and back. And I'd like to talk to you about some things we need to work on. And we go in back with three or four of his advisors, and it's just me from the American side. Nobody else is allowed him. And he looks at me and he goes, are you a believer? And I said, a believer in what? And uh, he, of course, he turned around and he said, are you a believer in our holy mother of Fatima? 
And I said, absolutely. I say a rosary to her every day. And I said, that's why I'm here. And he goes, then that makes you as much Portuguese as I am. So let's go to work. And that's a that gospel so awesome. true story. And it's, I, we, I, we owe the whole thing to our Holy Mother. And that's why we were there. And we have no idea. You know, we kept trying to figure out, you know, we had to be sent here for a reason. We did a lot of things. We did a lot of things with the church. We did a lot of things with, you know, went and met with the Pope. And, you know, we did all kinds of different things. But I have never figured out why we were there. So, well, someday we'll, you know. When we get to heaven, we'll finally figure it out. I got some clues as to why you were there. I think God probably wanted you there if I were to make an educated guess. I mean, what an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's very personal. Uh, and after you spent that time there, I'd be curious. Like, I feel like I don't know much about the Portuguese people other than uh, Ronaldo, which is so sad. But Ronaldo really sticks out to me. I know that they're Catholic. I know it's, it's an amazing place from what it sounds like. Can you tell me a little bit more about the flavor of the Portuguese people and how their faith uh, plays a role in their kind of everyday life. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a humble group. It's, it's a wonderful society. I mean, the people are very spiritual. Uh, it's 87% Catholic. So it's one of the highest uh, Catholic populated countries in the world. Um, it, it, they've got a number of the, you know, one of the interesting things is, is the Cardinal in Lisbon is also the patriarch of Lisbon. So, so they've got sort of their high up in the hierarchy of uh, of the church. Um, it permeates everything they do, and and that's one of when you brought up the point of they hadn't had a Catholic ambassador there for a while, uh, which is true. Uh, the last Catholic ambas- ambassadors, we were trying to figure it out. We came to the conclusion it was probably Frank Carlucci in 1974. And Carlucci went through the revolution. He became famous for Henry Kissinger said, it's too dangerous. The the Russians are taking over. The communists are taking over the government. You need to leave. And he said, no, I'm not leaving because I know that uh, democracy can win. And on the top of the residence, which is still the ambassador's residence, he met with Mario Suarez, who was a uh, who's then became became prime minister. They met together. They rewrote parts of the constitution. They had runners sending them out to the streets, and they they democracy reigned. And so the 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 home of democracy in Portugal is on top of the house we lived in for three and a half years. Wow. And so so it's really they're very intertwined with the U.S. But when it comes back to back to uh, the uh, the Catholic side, it's part of it's part of their their politics. It's part of their government. Um, they certainly have a strong group of French Masons there whose uh, mission is to uh, destroy the Catholic Church. And so that's high in academia and politics and so forth. But there is there is a, a consistent battle that goes on that with the Catholic Church that's part of every part of that community. And every part of the populace and every part of, uh, of the social network and the culture of what goes on in Portugal. Yeah. So they don't, they don't really have a true conception. And I almost hesitate to bring this up, but separation of church and state, because it's so misunderstood. Um, but the, it, it's so integrated both in politics and lifestyle that they wouldn't have that conception. Like they would just see it more as reality. Right. Well, and what it did for us was um, it allowed us, I mean, we would go to mass with the president. And so there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of things get done on the side as you're walking out of, you know, out of church after mass that uh, that you can get back and forth that doesn't have to be in an official meeting. And so I found that the politics 
you know, and certainly the prime minister is not Catholic, nor does he want anything to do with the Catholic Church. And so you've got to be able to play all games uh, and so forth. But uh, there certainly is a very strong connection with much of the government and the Catholic Church in Portugal. Yeah. And some people say you can in go a good to, way. Yeah. I was going to say some people would say you could go to mass with the president of the United States, um, but people like to debate uh, his status of <laughs> is tough. Um, Don't, you know, you know, and that whole, you know, on that note, that Pew uh, uh, poll came out in 2019 about the Eucharist and that literally two thirds of American Catholics don't believe that the Eucharist is the transubstantiation of, wild, of the body of Christ. And uh, that that came to Portugal. I mean, the Portuguese looked at me and they were like, is that true? Um, I mean, because they take their their acceptance of the Eucharist and their thought of I mean, that is why they're Catholic. That the, the entire belief in the church revolves around the Eucharist. And and uh, for for somebody for somebody who's out of grace of God to take the Eucharist is is I mean, is an abomination to them. And so you'll see a lot of Europeans, they won't go up and take the Eucharist or do communion during mass because they don't feel like they're in grace with God. Now, if you're Joe Biden and you're pushing abortion throughout the entire world and trying to have American taxpayers pay for it throughout the entire world to say that you're in grace with God when our main pillar of the Catholic Church is life, I don't see how, I mean, I, I don't blame the cardinals across the United States who have said, I'm not, that person's in my diocese. They are not, you know, they're not, he's not getting that. I totally agree with that. Completely. Yeah. I, I completely on the same page, but that's so interesting to hear about the Portuguese people that that they don't struggle with that like two thirds. I feel like there's a lot of Catholicism residue in America where people, it's like a social club almost, but they don't really believe in what's going on. Why do you think Portugal as a nation and a people were able to retain that proper understanding and catechism of what the Eucharist is, of what their faith means, where in America, it seems like there is a separation and it's somewhat only cultural, but not actually reality for Catholics in America? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure I have, I have the right answer for it. And so much comes with, with the history. And uh, I think when we got there, we were told there was really a, suffer, a bit of suffering of faith in the Portuguese Catholic Church in that, you know, you had 87% Catholic, but only, you know, a third of those or half of those were going to church. And we had a wonderful basilica, which was our neighborhood church. We got to go to, it's like, you know, going to St. Patrick's for your, you know, neighborhood, uh, you know, for your every weekly mass. It was awesome. But when we, when we got there, we did see that it was probably a quarter full, a fifth full. And I, and I thought, man, there really is some truth that, you know, the, the, there is not a lot of enthusiasm and momentum going on in the church. But by the time we left, it seemed like there was a really a resurgence that went on. And I would say that that number doubled easily in the time that we were there. Now, what's that attribute to? I don't know. You know, I mean, there was a lot going on. You have, uh, you know, with with uh, World Youth Day was last this last year in in Fatima in Portugal. And so a lot of that was beginning to get set up. And, you know, so there was just a lot of enthusiasm coming on for the Catholic Church. And I think that had the most to do with it. But but the historical these they are. I mean, when you look at like Catholic on a scale of one to 10, and if the average Americans are four or five, man, the, the, the Portuguese are eight or nines, you know, yeah. they're, 
they're very serious about it. That's awesome to hear. And and you did a you did a great job as an ambassador. I, I believe you've won a few awards from the State Department. Uh, and just to kind of get a give a picture to some of the audience, what is your what does excellence look like for an ambassador? What is your day to day mission of like what are you trying to accomplish? And then what would you consider to be success? Yeah, it's I I, I think there's so many different ways you can look at that. And uh, the the award that I got was I was the ambassador of the year for the United States and around the globe. So it traditionally, and I was very proud of that because I was proud of our embassy and who we had and what we were getting done. I mean, that to me, that was an award for a hundred Americans working together to work, you know, rowing in the, the correct manner to get things done. So many embassies under the Trump administration, you had people who were embedded in that embassy who were, you know, working at the State Department. They've been there a long time. They're part of that bureaucracy. They may not have agreed with Trump's policies or what we were doing on foreign policy. And so they would, you know, put up roadblocks and so forth. And we got we got total buy in from our group. I mean, I just working with them, uh, it was the greatest experience. And so that's what the State Department gave it to us for was the ability to get things done versus in years past, it's always gone to, you know, the year before I went to John Huntsman, who was in Russia. You know, it goes to the ambassador of China. It goes to the ambassador of India. It goes to the ambassador of huge countries or that did big deals. Uh, to have Portugal win that was was a big surprise, believe me, because we're not, you know, I mean, but we were getting, we were hitting a, a lot bigger than our weight. Um it was, you know, from the countryside, it was a great honor to be, and this was the president's doing. Um, I was uh, knighted with their highest civilian honor. And so I, I'm a, I get to be Sir George in Portugal, I guess. Nobody calls, I mean, my wife calls, Mary calls me that when she's mad. You know, that's... Um, sorry, sorry, I didn't address you with your proper title. <laughs> Although when I did Google, and I, I, I'm sure this is probably just annoying at this point, George Glass, I mean, the Brady Bunch, do you, do you get oh, that? Yeah. Kind of- <laughs> oh, all the time. All the time. And in fact, if you go to Marsha Brady's uh, website, they have a, a fan website for Marsha Brady. She was, uh, it was funny because the George Glass was Jan Brady, the middle girl's uh, make-believe boyfriend. And so they brought it up in a number of shows and in the movies and so forth. But what was funny is, is on, on Marsha's site, it was like, finally, Jan, Jan overtook you, you know, she, her boyfriend's an ambassador and you got, you ended up with nobody. So I'm so glad that you are able to have a sense of humor about that. I feel like with that, it's like, you either got to fully embrace it or just never talk about it. There's no in between, like, because no. no matter how many medals you get for being an ambassador, <laughs> you're always going to be overtaken by Google search uh, SEO with George Glass from the Brady Bunch. So I'm glad yeah, that you yeah. said to you around, even hesitant to bring it up. Um, I sorry. I, yeah. No, 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 no. That's hysterical. I will, you know, we laugh about it all the time. I do want to put in one plug for my wife, Mary. She was um, asked to join. Uh, she's actually Lady Mary. Uh, she was titled there. They asked her to join um, the, uh, the Royal um, uh, Convent and the Royal Order. Uh, for the uh, Duchess of Braganza. It's a, she's the only American, I think, ever to be inducted into that. Wow. And it's the, uh, the convent that St. Lucia went to and then uh, passed away in, uh, in, in her order. And so it's a, it's a fabulous, and Mary, it's an order of prayer. And so uh, it's, I'm very proud of Mary. That's a yeah, congratu- huge Yeah, congratulations deal. to Mary. That, that brings up another question. Uh, are, when you're a diplomat, when you're an ambassador like that, 
are the wives typically that involved? Is it kind of a family affair or is she just above? I'm sure she's above and beyond, of course, but like, is that more of a family deal? I, you can do it either way. I mean, we always laugh because they give you a class at the State Department. You go for a master class and they take your spouse and they do a traveling spouse class for about a week. So she was in with Newt Gingrich because Callista <laughs> went to the Vatican. So she yeah. Newt, she's like bugging Newt, you know, about you do know how to set the table, right? Newt, you know, she's, <laughs> uh, Newt's a spectacular, wonderful guy. And Callista did a tremendous job at the Vatican. Uh, we worked very closely with them on a number of items. Uh, but it, it, we decided we were partners in this. And so what we got over there and they kind of they would like your spouse to uh, do something. And and so some spouses do one thing or another. Mary is a landscape uh, designer by profession. And so she said, I'm going to take the environment. You know, we're, we're from originally from Oregon. We're big tree huggers. And, so, and uh, she ended up planting the first ever, uh, it, it was the U.S.-Portuguese friendship forest. She planted an entire forest after a burn because they, they had terrible reforestation management. And uh, we all of our friends are in the timber business and so forth, so we got a lot of help and support from them. And then in the firefighting side, we put together the Portuguese, flew over that group of experts to Idaho to meet with the U.S. Forest Service to figure out how to reforestate, how to prevent uh, fires. They have, they've had horrible forest fires there. Uh, I mean, literally they killed over a hundred people. Wow. Um, that's so, so cool though, that they could like come to America and see how it's done. You know? Yeah. And that was her deal. I mean, that was, that was, Mary was great at that. And then we did a, a sister park agreement with a national park, a Cascade national park here in Washington state with uh, Panetta Jerez, their national park. So Mary did all that. So she was, it was very environmentally focused and, and worked on the outside. We we laughed. I mean, everybody in the world was like, you know, Trump's not an environmentalist. And we're like, well, he's the only president ever to cut down the carbon emissions from the United <laughs> States and did it two years in a row. Yeah. People people like to gloss over that because it's not consistent with uh, them really hating Orange Man bad. Uh, another question then for you, it seems like with the ambassadorship, uh, you were able to help Portugal maybe learn some things from America. Did you feel like you were able to learn anything from Portugal that you were able to bring back or that Americans did? You know, one of the one of the things I think you learn the most of how um, how interactions and negotiations go. And this is something that President Trump did that was different than anyone else. He didn't send politicians out as ambassadors. He didn't send lawyers. He He sent business people. I mean, Woody Johnson of the Johnson & Johnson, you know, company was Great Britain. Uh, Jamie McCourt, who at one point owned the L.A. Dodgers and was, you know, owns a, a media company. I mean, we're all business people who went out. And then he tasked us with, with he made us accountable to items of which he wanted done. And so we were tasked to go out and get these done. For example, uh, for the EU countries to go to these countries or the NATO, I'm sorry, the NATO countries in Europe and to uh, get each country to live up to their 2% of GDP commitment to fund NATO. And we went out um, on his behalf. I mean, this is, and it's something that he talks about today is that he got NATO to uh, fund over $400 billion, uh, European nations to fund NATO for $400 billion. That's what we did. We were tasked to go out 
to our countries and say, you've got to pay your fair share. This is the amount. And uh, if you have politicians doing that, I mean, this is this is something that negotiations that business people do every day. So it was very easy for this group to go do it. Uh, and we also, we realized very quickly, we all work together. I mean, it's not like you work in a silo, like Portugal doesn't talk. Duke Buchan was the ambassador to Spain. I still talk to him every week. Uh, we talk virtually every day on what we were doing, how this could fit together and how we could work our, you know, work, work our needs and what our, our wishes were for our countries. So, so it was, it was really, to me, it was the art of negotiation between the two countries. You had to learn how, how they do business, you know, which is different yeah. than America. I mean, they all want access to our country. They all want access to our markets, but they don't do business the same way we do business. So, so it was it was interesting on that front. I think you know really uh, on uh, there was so much culturally to learn, but but I you know I uh, what what I really think to me what came out of it personally was is we talk social justice in the United States. This is a language that um, Catholics have been talking for two thousand years. I mean, we talk who feeds the poor. Who educates the uneducated? Who clothes people? Who how who takes people under our roof? We've been doing this forever, and in Europe, uh, they've been focused on social issues. I think longer than we have in the United States. So when I came back to the U.S. and I have twenty-five-year-old people telling me about social issues, when when this is a language that we as Catholics have been speaking for thousands of, you know, for over a thousand years. It's, to me, it was the readjustment of, you know, America's got to learn really what social justice is and how this works and how we support people. And we do it because because of our church. We don't do it because of our politics. We do it because of our, our beliefs in God. You know, we're told by Jesus, you know, we need to help. We do that. Not, we don't do it because politically it's going to make somebody else look bad. And that to me is, and then that's sort of the message I've been trying to bring out now that I've come back here for the last three years is, you know, religious freedom is under attack in the United States. I mean, look how much violence has gone on towards Catholic churches. I mean, you at Catholic Vote have kept track of, of that. It's well over 100 violent acts on Catholic organizations and churches just in the last, I don't know, you know, since the Biden administration. Oh, it's it's in the I think it's like three hundred plus now since Biden administration. But yeah, shame it, it's, on me. Yeah, no, no, sorry. I, I've just because I mean, oh my gosh, we were we were totally in that. We were getting stuff from all over the country. People sending in like, hey, this happened to my church. This happened to my priest. Crazy. Um, yeah, such an interesting topic though, and I'm, it's awesome to get the international perspective on it. I think you're absolutely correct. Social justice in terms of I mean, you can go back to documents like Rerum Novarum, but uh, Catholic social teaching is really. The crux of it is based on like how do we best take care of people? Uh, what what justice is in? What do we owe to people? Uh, what do we owe to one another? And I feel like um, it's so interesting to hear talk about like the twenty five year olds. I, I'm actually twenty five, not to out myself, but um, there's <laughs> sorry a, about that. <laughs> no, it's not an insult at all. Um, but there's a, a really strong. How do I put this? Like, uh, I think people that are very progressive have co opted very uh, strong and effective language to uh, meet their political ends. So when I think of that, I think of like climate justice. Uh, so uh, that's one of them. Uh, liberation. Uh, it's actually a lot of that language you'll find within Marxism and communism. 
but it's not really tied towards, like you said, that Catholic understanding of human dignity and the thousands of years traditions and thought on it. It seems like it's almost like they kind of found the strong language and they've been able to use it effectively to maybe actually do some things that are actually against human dignity. For example, when it comes to climate justice, meaning like, all right, so we're just going to wipe out the poor here because people aren't going to have affordable energy. So how do you think- um, Well, or, or the-, the southern border. Oh, yeah. God. If you're a Catholic and you're a believer in dignity of man and the suffering that, that we know is going on, how you could justify having that border and encouraging people to come to it, it's just, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I can't even put it into words how, how heinous and evil that is. And this is, I mean, and hence, why is that now the biggest topic in politics today? And, 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 you know, the biggest policy uh, focus of which voters are, are looking at in Iowa, New Hampshire, and now, you know, I mean, and so forth. I mean, it's just every poll has that as being number one is because they're right. It's horrible. It's terrible. Well, getting, getting back to your experience mismatching with the media, remember all the stink they put up over kids in cages and, and, and Trump's treatment of the border? And to now see the entire population of Pittsburgh come over and be completely undocumented with 60% of those women being sexually abused on the way to the border, all the deaths happening there. I'm actually hearing it's a lot higher than that. Yeah. Oh, I guarantee it is. But we're, we're talking about even C, uh, CBP numbers that have just been reported. I think that's a very, very conservative estimate of what we're seeing. But we have populations of entire American cities coming across uh, with no vetting, uh, also, the, we're not even talking about the journey there. We're talking about the, if we want to talk about the dangerous journey there, how many people die, how many people get raped, how many people get um, abused in some fashion, uh, not, or military aged males coming over. I mean, sorry, I could go on and on. That's not really what I'm here to do, but no. it's just so interesting hearing the, the difference between you know what you maybe hear from a mainstream message and what's really going on. So I guess if I could finish, because we started with this, and I'd like to end with this. Um, Say you wanted, as someone with personal experience with President Trump and now multiple administrations, uh, you know, I think some people still are hesitant because he's not Catholic or because of things they've heard about him in the media. Uh, If you were to talk to, say, someone who's well-meaning, not in bad faith, uh, wanting to understand why a Catholic would vote for someone like Donald Trump, what answer would you give them? Well, I, I think one of the most telling things, and so I hate leading by example, but I'll give you the example. There were more Catholics in the White House than maybe any other administration that we know of. They were having weekly rosaries in the White House. They've held mass in the White House. Prayer was brought back to the White House. I mean, look at uh, Joe Grogan, head of national policy, very Catholic uh, very wonderful human being. Uh, you know, Jack, uh, Brian Jack, who's on the campaign, running part of the campaign now, very Catholic. Vince Haley, running policy on the campaign, very Catholic. Kellyanne Conway, I had her to a prayer breakfast and she described to everybody, to everybody there, her walk with Jesus. And boy, did that make a lot of you know media uncomfortable. And uh, Larry Kudlow, who's on TV every day. Uh, Larry Kudlow, very Catholic. Very. I mean, we had... Uh, it, it, I think the most, I, I don't know, probably the strongest statement I can say is that man brought prayer back to the White House. Donald Trump is pro-life. And I know he's gone through a lot of, you know, everybody can say one thing or another, but the man is pro-life. He loves praying with people. You know, when you see the pictures and you know, the evangelicals and everybody's praying together. I was down in California at a uh, fundraiser with President Trump in uh, 
uh, in November. And a whole group of women stood up and said, Mr. President, would you mind if we pray for you right now? And the entire crowd put their hands up and we're praying and he's praying. It's just he is a God fearing spiritual individual who has our our faith in mind. And when he saw, you know, I, I think you probably saw the video, uh, but uh, uh, he saw the uh, endorsement from Catholic vote. And he suddenly brought that up that night, you know, with the yeah. speech he was given in Iowa. He's like, this is great, Catholic vote. Yeah. And he goes, you know what? I did a lot for Catholics. And he did. Yeah, He, he did a, a ton for Catholics, and especially on the life front, and, and especially on immigration and on the border and dignity for human beings. And let's remember, you know, we, when you talk social justice, the way you can do that on such a national level is to begin to put economic zones into poor neighborhoods that tend to be black and brown. You know, this 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 man did more for the black and brown communities economically than any president maybe in our history. And so that's something I'm super proud of. And uh, this is this is a president that will talk to you about God. And we have a, a quote unquote Catholic that I, I these no I mean, I'm not in the same church as Joe Biden is, I can tell you that. Um, but this is somebody who won't talk about that, doesn't bring prayer to the White House. And so I get it. President Trump is not Catholic, but everything that he sponsors and helps everything that we were doing in the white house i mean this he was a just a voracious fighter for religious freedom overseas and domestically i can't tell you how many things we did regarding religious freedom uh, i was in you know israel three times working on that for the trump administration i mean this is he created peace in the middle east you know i mean let's remember jesus jesus asked us to pray for jerusalem you know, well, he is unwilling to give up on what was going if you on. Want to juxt- I mean, if you want to juxtapose where the Middle East is right now and where it was under the Trump years, it's it's like almost unrecognizable. I mean, I don't even crazy. I mean, even if you just wanted to go off of that, if you were in favor of international peace, it was pretty great during 2016 and 2020. I mean, we're not seeing the problems we see now, even under the Obama administration, too. It's not like he inherited a great Middle East either. I remember there was plenty of problems going on with Syria and the red line and everything like that. So, um, yeah, George, th- this is uh, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming oh, on sharing you. expertise. And if people want to uh, maybe follow you or follow your work or maybe uh, you want to plug your foundation, now would be a good time. Well, I uh, we actually were transitioning a lot of that, so I'm going to thank you. But uh, okay. probably, at this point in time, what I'm doing is is uh, I'm committed to working on the Trump campaign. We need to get that individual back into office. It's, I mean, you know, the, the day that we need to get Joe Biden out of the White House, and the day that happens will be a great day of celebration. But my sole focus is to get President Trump back in the White House, get this country back working in the right direction. And, you know, and, and I think is we can't promote peace and love and, and, and our Catholic values as we go. And we can do that. I mean, we, we proved it in 2016. We can prove it now. We can, we can get that done. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. All right. Thanks, Tom. 